Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Book News Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler Hopes. Today we'll be talking with Landon Mascaradas and Donnie Tran, authors of The Open System, Redesigning Education and Reigniting Democracy. How are you guys doing today? Oh, we're doing really great. It's really nice to be here with you, Deidre. Ginger, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I wonder if you guys could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Well, um, I'll jump in. And uh, again, thank you for all that you're doing to highlight uh, authors and uh, books and ideas, Deirdre. Um, You know, Donnie and I have been friends for a long time. We met um, just over 10 years ago when we started graduate school together became uh, kind of just intellectual uh, compatriots. We both went off in the world in different directions. And in 2019, we came back together with uh, a lot of other folks uh, that were working on a similar conundrum, how to deal with the fact that too many of our public systems, in particular education, were closed off to the communities they served. And we began a journey with those folks and many others to essentially co-create a shared discipline, a shared set of language for leaders inside and outside of education to start to work together. Because in our experience, uh, there were a lot of leaders uh, who really wanted to redesign our education systems. And in the context of the COVID pandemic, this became really acute. And um, the book is a collection of the principles that we've designed with many people along the way, stories from our careers and others um, that I think we, that we believe are a really optimistic set of examples of what it means to transform education And as a recent interviewer of ours told us, um, it really reads as a blueprint for practicing local democracy in education. I think that's the hope for the book is that folks can grab this and take wisdom from across the field and begin to practice it. Well, tell us about these public institutions. Are they not really serving the communities? Uh, Well, what we found is that in both Landon and I have a lot of experience inside these institutions and as leaders outside of them. Um, Landon worked for Denver Public Schools and, and a number of uh, educational organizations in and around Colorado and uh, in the whole Four Corners region. And I was able to, to uh, do a lot of work in both Boston Public Schools uh, and in the Atlanta area of Fulton County Schools. Sorry about that. Uh, and what, we, what we've seen is that the, these institutions want to serve their communities. They want uh, to fulfill their missions, and yet over time have been structured in such a way that they lose their ability to be responsive to the communities that they're embedded in. Uh, they, they are in that non-responsiveness comes in a couple of different ways. First, they they tend to not be very receptive to a, the rich diversity of information. That comes from communities. Uh, they they sort of limit the signal or create a lot of choke points uh, of what kind of information can come into assist into the system, and at, at what points during over a time scale. So we we see this in education all the time that you know the uh, families are sort of reduced to their sort of lowest common denominator, like how many kids do they have, what neighborhood do they live in, uh, what services do they require. And the ways in which the, their experience is understood is usually narrowed very tightly into 
How do they feel about a sur- or how do they feel on a survey? How do they indicate their preferences? As opposed to seeing and being really responsive to the rich, full diversity of information that could be available to a community or from a community to a system and being responsive to that. And w- when that happens, we, we see systems that uh, aren't actually very able to really hear and understand the issues that face the community and therefore can't design solutions uh, to be responsive to that. Well, what can administrators do to show the people that their input is valuable? Well, we believe this is actually uh, just such an important question, Deirdre, and it's one of the reasons why the book is really targeted toward administrators and school leaders, as well as leaders outside the system. Um, and we, and again, to Donnie's point, we we know a lot of administrators um, who really deeply believe uh, in building community uh, input and also building a school the community wants. Um, so I think there's a few things that uh, we really recommend to people. We start actually the whole book with uh, talking about leadership and open leadership in particular. And the idea that you have to really um, do a few things really well, like number one, um, and we took a lot of advice and uh, interest from research on democratic leadership, small d democratic leadership, um, to say, number one, you have to uh, be willing to go where the community goes. Um, You have to be willing to admit that your ideas aren't uh, always going to be the ideas at the forefront. And that's the kind of one of the first steps of a a leader who's willing to build a local democracy. Two is you have to be willing to build a shared vision. It can't just be your vision. I think this actually stands in contrast to a significant amount of uh, how our education leaders have been trained over the past few decades uh, to essentially come with a vision already baked. Uh, And then three um, and we think this is actually the most challenging aspect is they, they have to be willing to say that, yes, we understand that maybe this school or this system hasn't actually done as well by the community as we may have wanted. Um, but this is the consequential part. They have to be willing to then say, but together we can make it better. Um, and too often, I think many of our leaders in education struggle with all three of these pieces. And the example we give of the Homegrown Talent Initiative in Colorado, where rural communities came together with businesses and civic leaders and their higher ed partners to redesign education systems to be more relevant uh, to promote economic development are is a really powerful example how this work can be done in any context, whether rural, suburban, or urban, and um, that it requires that leadership shift and mindset. Now, in your book, you talk about the difference between open and closed systems. Can you tell the audience more about that? Yeah, we'd love to. I mean, it's at the core of uh, the way that these systems are designed. And we've hit on a lot of it already, Deirdre, that this idea of an open system is one that is uh, has permeable boundaries. There's information and energy that can flow across that boundary. So if we think about the unit that a lot of people are pretty familiar with, their school, uh, our parents and community members kept at arm's length uh, from the school building and the decisions that are made inside. Is there information flowing freely in both directions that families are uh, sharing their insights and students are sharing their insights into the school building for people to help them make better decisions? Are the leaders inside those buildings are they actively involving families and young people in the act of co-creating new solutions uh, and new insights to the issues that confront them? That's 
that's what we think of when we think of an open system. And it doesn't have to be limited to the uh, idea of a school. We think that districts can be open systems. They, they can structure themselves to be deeply responsive and co-creative with the communities that they're in. And we think that you know we, we have examples in the book of states also being open systems. And we don't usually think about states being that way. Uh, and we even have aspirations and hopes that the federal government can also you know, characterize itself as an open system. Because many systems are, in fact, quite closed right now. They, they don't allow for that free flow of information, insights, and energy across their boundaries. You know, can an educational system really be open? Not all of the ideas from parents are good. And when it comes to talking about history books off the library shelves, some of these are awful. How do you see the open versus closed system playing in these debates? Oh, man, what an important question, Deirdre. You know, um, it's a really fascinating thing because I think that there are some folks that say, well, like, obviously our system can't be completely open. And I think Dai and I's response to it is, uh, of course, uh, not any idea or any framework needs to be universally applied to every single moment in every single system. Um, yet we believe that uh, when we hear this from parents and leaders all too often that um, the preponderance of evidence suggests that too many of our systems are closed off whether it's in the design of the classroom, the relationship between a parent and a teacher, um, the way a principal designs the new school um, kind of vision and pedagogy, um, that these things actually, uh, we have to remember that these are enormously large taxpayer-funded institutions. And if we don't build legitimacy and trust with our community members at the basic level or strive to war open behavior, then we risk uh, eroding that trust. And I think your example of books and libraries is a really important one. I think that it's a very natural reaction to say, hey, hold on, how dare you tell us what books we can have in the library? Um, but I think we would argue that um, in some of these cases, uh, school leaders should run toward the noise. Um, we hear this a lot from our kind of most open leaders. And they say that, you know, we've run processes and we think differently about, we invite parents into these conversations and we say, let's actually have a conversation about how we... Um, choose books in our school. Let's have a conversation about the types of literature that we're really exposing students to. Um, and we think that oftentimes when you lean toward that in a co-constructive conversation, um, that actually most of the time, a lot of the parents actually come away with, oh, okay, like, thank you for educating me about what's happening right here. Um, now, that's not going to solve for all of the what we would make seeing as reactionary element that is in too often um, actually coordinated attacks on education system to kind of uh, gin up an agenda. Um, but uh, what educators need to realize is that by actually um, opposing those forces uh, undemocratically, they're actually giving them more energy and they're actually giving them uh, more fodder for saying that school systems aren't responsive. Um, and we've watched leaders in a variety of political contexts lean into the noise and open up uh, and say, hey, let's build this together. Um, let's actually think about this. Um, and actually, if you do a consensus-driven process, what actually happens is a significant amount of parents who may be kind of skeptical or neutral um, kind of actually find themselves coming together in a lot of agreement. Um, we're not saying these are easy choices to make, but um, we have to think deliberately about the way that we either run toward these problems democratically or undemocratically. And uh, Deirdre, I just wanted to add to that, that we, both Landon and I, came at the writing of this book and the conceptualization of these ideas through both a you know theoretical lens 
but also it from a very, very practical lens as well. So when we, when we constructed the book, we constructed it around six principles and each of those principles can, uh, the chapters on each of those principles contain specific strategies about how to enact those principles and do exactly what Landon is saying. And we give case studies and examples from our experience and experience of those uh, leaders that we know in the system to really make it clear that these things are, while difficult, quite possible uh, when you take facilitation of them really seriously, as I think I hear Landon saying. Well, I read some of the examples. Landon, can you give us an example about your family? Tell us about that story. Oh, thank you for asking. You know, my um, great-grandmother, Rafaela, came to the United States from Mexico, from Zacatecas, um, in 1922. Um, and not long after, not long after, had my grandmother uh, Maria, who is still alive today, ninety-five years old. Both my grandparents are still alive. Um, uh, both of them, uh, Spanish was their first language. Uh, but in the case of my grandmother, um, she went to Boulder schools and was held back in first grade for speaking Spanish. And because of that shame, and because of uh, the system not being open to who she was as a person, or the needs of her as a um, as a student with Spanish as their first as her first language, um, she was uh, she was convinced never to teach her own children Spanish. Therefore, uh, language was eradicated uh, from my family, um, and I think that's a pretty common story we have um, in too many circumstances around the country. Um, you know, uh, Deirdre I was just in Sweden uh, this summer. Um, and I, and everyone in Sweden learns three languages in school. Uh, they learn Swedish, they learn English, and then they get to pick another language. Um, and, uh, to me, that's an openness to the potential of different cultures interacting and different languages and perspectives coming together. Um, whereas in our system, I think we need to think really critically about the way that we treat cultures and difference and, uh, and embrace it, not just to say, Hey, it's awesome that you speak something. Here's a book about it. Uh, but rather, uh, what would it mean to embrace the full spectrum of cultures and communities that live in our school systems? Absolutely. Donnie, you talked about uh, uncle in school. Tell us about your family's journey. Sure. Um, my my parents um, were refugees from Vietnam, and my dad was a helicopter pilot in the, in the military there. And they left under you know, extraordinary duress. Uh, and over... Over time, though, they made their way to the United States, to Richmond, Virginia, where I would later be born. But they they brought so many of their family members uh, to join them and uh, and to try to rebuild a community in in the context of of a new a new homeland. And my my uncle, my mother's youngest brother, uh, was still high school aged at the time, and he really really struggled in. In that context, uh, he was new to learning the language. He was trying to fit in, um, and you know, trying to put on hairstyles and clothes, and uh, to you know, fit in and uh, get integrated into into the society that he had just found himself in. And the school system made that really difficult for him in a lot of ways. They they did not really accommodate uh, structurally his need for additional support. They weren't really open to uh, what he brought to, as, a, as a new citizen to that school community. Uh, and everything was sort of pigeonholed into him being uh, an English language learner. That was the only element of his identity that the system really heard and could understand. And 
there was no multidimensionality to how they saw him. And as a result, he felt really marginalized, uh, really stigmatized. And I think that's really affected the arc of, of his whole life. And uh, he and I have had many discussions about this. And so it really inspired me, um, much as Landon's story inspired him, uh, to think through how can we really create systems that see the complexity of things much more fully. Um, and that's really been motivating for me. Now, in your book, you talk about the shared language for citizens. Tell us about this shared language and what happens when we don't have the shared language. Man, uh, Deirdre, this, this is so important. Shared language is everything um, and really is the impetus for us building this whole project uh, since we started even before 2019 when we brought the first group together is that we saw community organizers, school administrators, community leaders, district leaders, charter leaders, you know, this diverse set of actors all trying to, you know, figure out how to work together for the benefit of redesigning education. And I think we've heard this language a lot also across uh, even now through the pandemic is a lot of people are dissatisfied with the education system and are agitating to make it better, whether you're on the left, right, or center, um, whether you're inside or outside education. Um, but oftentimes what Donnie and I experienced from a practice perspective, and we share a lot of these examples in the book, is that people were talking past each other. Um, they were using different language to talk about maybe very similar things or lacked the sharpness and precision of saying, how do we actually build a strategy to create a task force that will endure enormous political challenge? And what happened in, instead was a groundhog day of sadness uh, where these incredible community events would collapse under their own weight and different language was being used. So fundamentally, um, that's the core of the project is um, the set of six principles and the set of uh, practices under each principles, whether it's open leadership, knowing your community, designing a breakthrough space, modeling creative democracy, uh, assembling abundance partnerships and expanding openness and the practices inside of each of those pieces, whether it's um, inclusive democracy practices for a task force or um, building clarity when you generate partnerships um, and the actual moves inside of it. Um, already, one of the greatest compliments that um, we've been getting from folks in the field, and we are just unbelievably humbled uh, when people say this to us, Deirdre, as they say, I've been trying to do this and I didn't have the language for it, but this is how I've been trying to live and work in education. Thank you for putting language to it. And now we have leaders inside and outside the system saying, what does it mean for us to have an inclusively democratic task force? And let's use the strategies to talk through it. Um, to us, that's the beginning of all this incredible diverse set of stakeholders coming together to actually practice even more leveraging this blueprint of shared language. Now, let's look at each of the principles, starting with number one. Tell us something about it and an example. Sure. We... Oh, the first one starts really with the reflection about yourself as a leader. Uh, the first principle is open leadership, and and how do you, as a as a person trying to create change, how do you approach the act of being an open leader and creating an open system? What are some of your beliefs around what openness might look like? Do you truly have uh, an open mind and an open heart, and are you open to the possible paths? that the an open process might take you. And we really uh, structure a, a number of reflection exercises that ask people to consider things like their purpose, their passion, their their place, where what activates them about the work they do, how they do it, and where they do it. 
And so this it's really an inward look uh, in that first principle, asking people to consider those things um, as they start to emerge in, into this kind of leadership. And um, there's a number of examples. I, I'm, I'm always struck by one uh, from Valverde Elementary School, and um, it, it features a leader who said to, uh, said to us, you know, this is not really my school. You know, this is the community school. I'm just here to activate that vision. I'm here to bring it to life. Uh, and so that's an example of the kinds of orientations that we think characterize open leadership. Principle two. Knowing your community, um, one of the, the example that we get, the vignette, uh, the, you know, we, we have in each principle a case study. And in this case study, we talk a lot about the Yabasta report uh, in Denver Public Schools in Denver, where multiple community organizations came together to say enough already, we need to help transform schools in southwestern Denver. Um, and then um, Denver Public Schools um, launched a program called the Year Zero Turnaround, where one principal was a, a veteran principal came in to hold the school study while another principal came in to do a year's worth of community visioning design work. And through the, that case study, we really highlight some key practices of redefining community and uh, re-understanding what the open moment is, that political moment where you actually can achieve a co-creative opportunity. Um, and then also mapping and understanding the key uh, stakeholders and the potential strategies you already have in place, like home visit and family engagement activities, which we think are critical to openness, um, but are really kind of infrastructure components to the broader redesigned mental model that you need to go through. Principle three, what do you mean by breakthrough spaces? Well, what we find is that um, often when systems engage in the process of uh, doing something with their community, they tend to create a space that isn't actually designed for effectiveness, efficiency, or really powerful breakthrough experiences that are going to transform the experience of young people and communities in schools. And so Open Principle 3 really tries to get into that. So instead of doing things like having these interminable uh, processes or task forces that go on forever with no clear objective, with no clear goal, no clear timeline, uh, just to exist as a community engagement tool, uh, we, we really recommend replacing that idea with something that's really sharp, quite clear, and has a real cadence that is uh, organized towards an outcome uh, that's really concrete and powerful and visible. And so the this chapter really um, gets into how to do that, and, and in particular, how to compose those groups uh, in a way that is unusually inclusive. Uh, we often create task forces that look a lot like the people we're most comfortable with as leaders. Uh, and how do we actually break ourselves out of that and have a group that's really designed to have a real deep representation from, especially from those parts of your community that maybe don't get heard from as often. And the example there is really incredible work that Landon um, supported in the Boulder uh, Valley School District in Colorado as they were thinking about how to redesign the role of the school resource officer at a time when that was a really intensely fractious um, uh, issue to take on. How they composed a group, gave it a really clear charge, uh, and really organized its cadence to achieve a clear and decisive outcome. Principle four. You talked about the Colorado Youth Congress. 
tell us more about principle four. Well, principle four, um, is, you know, uh, the first two principles are in the preparing stage, you know, your leadership, um, knowing your community. And the second two principles are in the provoking phase, in the uh, designing that space that Donnie was talking about, and in the modeling of the creative democracy. Once you get inside the space, how are you making different types of decisions? The Colorado Youth Congress is an incredible organization um, founded by uh, Sam Batten. Um, Donnie and I both had uh, work with Sam, both in the open system work, and I served briefly on the board for Colorado Youth Congress at its inception. And it's an incredible organization to say, um, how do we get people to really, uh, how do we get youth to work together across the state to make proposals for shared advocacy work and then get to design that work together? And then we highlight the voting process that they make to actually hear and respond and design that work. Um, the other case study that we use in the modeling creative democracy section is some really incredible work that Donnie's done at a statewide level with the State Department of Education in Tennessee to reimagine assessment and accountability practices at a community using shared community aspirations to then bubble up to a statewide vision. United, we learn to build out what's possible for education um, in Kentucky. Principle five, abundance versus scarcity. Are many educators having that problem with scarcity? Well, uh, you know, scarcity is a, a is a sort of prevalent issue in so many of our public institutions, Deirdre, that the idea that oh, well, we could just do more if we had enough. And oh, why did that department get all of this, uh, all of these resources for that project and I don't have enough for me and ours? And why did this nonprofit get the grant when uh, this and when we didn't? That kind of thinking tends to really short circuit the sort of spread of openness in across you know any sort of sector. So as Landon noted, the the book is sort of divided into a series of phases. And in this last phase, um, which includes the last two principles, we really are thinking about how to propel openness from the project where it began into other parts of the system. And that sort of scarcity thinking of, well, there's limited resources, limited opportunities, uh, really gets in the way of that propelling process. And so when we think about how to get around that. We really think about grounding in the idea of abundance uh, and building partnerships based on the idea that there will be enough and that there is enough, there are enough resources, there are enough opportunities, there is enough uh, glory and credit and joy to spread around. And that we get to that by really being clear about where, where the potential scarcity issues are and getting clear about how we're going to address them. Uh, and acknowledging that people do have different capacity and will require different resources and actually bringing a little radical amount of transparency to that discussion. And so the Abundance Partnerships uh, chapter and principle are really about how do you do that? You know, how do you have those conversations? How do you name things with that level of clarity so that you can propel openness to a system? And principle six, how can communities keep this going on? Um it, this is the final uh, principle of the process, but in some ways, Deirdre, it's just the beginning. Um, you know, whether it's in Boulder having their breakthrough redesign of school discipline, um, which leads to then uh, co-creating and co-producing the design of the job descriptions, or in the homegrown talent initiative, um, the school districts coming together as eight districts, but then actually spreading to sixty districts and building regional infrastructure. 
Um, we really believe that the work of openness is about that breakthrough moment of kind of cracking open and proving that communities can come together, that we can build more together than we can apart, that shared aspirations have the potential to unite us and actually generate new trust and legitimacy into institutions. But it requires actually then saying, how do we expand it to other places? Uh, how do we then insert openness or augment openness into ex already existing initiatives that are getting started? How do we then and support and encourage other kind of would-be or ready openers around us so that we're not just doing this alone? Um, so it really uh, is the end, but also the beginning of expanding and furthering the power of what co-creation and community work can do. In your book, you talk about two organizations, Colorado Educational Initiative and Center for Innovation in Education. Would you like to tell us more? Oh, yes. Well, we are so in incredibly grateful for uh, the work that we've gotten to do with uh, these respective organizations. They've been incredible partners and supporters of open systems. Uh, they, we, we both uh, maintain really deep connections with these organizations. I still work there full time at the Center for Innovation Education and, and Landon's still associated um, with, uh, uh, with the Colorado Education Initiative as well. And the Center for Innovation Education focuses on co-creating policy uh, with communities that are affected by education work, and uh, especially in the area of assessment and accountability. And I'll let Landon talk a little bit more about CEIA. The Colorado Education Initiative is a uh, organization that's been around as an intermediary to work with schools and districts, originally formed to be the innovation uh, arm uh, of uh, kind of incubated out of the State Department of Education, but is a fully uh, separate nonprofit that takes on a lot of really leading work led by uh, Rebecca Holmes, our wonderful CEO. I've been working there full time for the past four years and recently moved to transition to part time as I take on uh, new opportunities around the country with the Open Systems Institute. Um, and some other roles and responsibilities here in Colorado. But uh, it's an incredible organization that really deeply committed to the work of building openness. So we're very grateful for both CIE and CEI, really confusing me now, uh, really helping us take this work uh, to the ground level and beyond. Now, what is the overall message you want your reader to leave with once they finish this book? You know, I think that the biggest thing we want people to remember and to know and to believe uh, that the fear can be overcome um, that others are doing it alongside you, that there is a blueprint uh, for trying this out, um, that it's not perfect, uh, that we can get to progress, not perfection, and that um, if you have this impulse and desire that you're not alone um, and that uh, this is possible and an optimistic vision of building a better democracy and a better education system is within our grasp. And uh, I, would only, I love everything that Landon said. I would only add that people make up institutions and people can change. And behaviors and habits can change. And uh, it just starts with every single open leader uh, bringing that orientation to its work. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? Um, <laughs> we are uh, deeply invested in the open system. Um, I think there's much, so much here that we are going to continue to deepen and explore. And we really look forward to working with uh, a big and ever-growing community of education and uh, other public sector leaders to expand openness. Um, that's right. You know, we're just uh, right now in the book launch phase, uh, Deirdre. We're both working on projects in our respective regions of the country. 
um, taking on new initiatives to build openness and uh, really committed to talking to folks like you and doing events around the country uh, to meet new people, learn and uh, build even more opportunity for that shared language to spread. Well, thank you for the interview. And again, we've been talking with the authors of The Open System, Redesigning Education and Redlining Democracy. Thank you for being on the program. Thank you, Deirdre. Appreciate you.